Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 446, recorded on Sunday, October 30th, 2022. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. Today's episode is on a nationally and socially significant Industrial Revolution era figure closely associated with my city of Newton, Massachusetts, since he lived for a while just up the street from me in the mid-1840s, although there are also schools all across the country bearing his name. Today, public education in the United States is facing a sustained attack from both conservative moral panics and neoliberal charter school proponents. There was also a recent controversial New York Times expose on publicly funded religious schools in New York and whether they are teaching critical basic skills to all, as required and expected. It's hard to imagine creating a concept like universal publicly funded primary and secondary school from scratch today, because of all the excuses that people would make for why it shouldn't be publicly funded or available to all. So let's turn back the clock to the late 1830s, with the first Industrial Revolution in full swing in the United States, and especially Massachusetts, although both were still heavily agrarian societies. And let's examine the emergence of secular public education in the first place, which once also seemed fairly unlikely. Rachel, could you give us the personal background and origin story for the education reformer Horace Mann. Horace Mann was born in Franklin, Massachusetts to a poor farming family. Uh, He had access to very little formal education. Uh, Poverty kept him out of school except for brief sporadic periods, but he had access to Franklin Public Library, the US's first public lending library founded by Benjamin Franklin. Using the library, he educated himself and he received tutoring in Latin and Greek from Samuel Barrett who later became a prominent Unitarian minister. At 20 years old, Mann was enrolled in Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, and he was able to graduate in three years as valedictorian. His valedictory address was about how education, philanthropy, and republicanism could be combined to solve the societal problems that beset mankind. After graduating from Brown, Mann briefly studied law under a Rentham, Massachusetts lawyer. He also taught Greek and Latin and worked at the library at Brown University for a couple of years. After a short stint at Brown, Mann studied law at Litchfield Law School in Connecticut, and in 1823, he was admitted to the Massachusetts Bar. He lived in Dedham, Massachusetts, practicing law for a few years, and in 1827, Mann was elected to the Massachusetts House of Representatives, where he served until 1833. While there, he established a hospital for the insane in Worcester, the first in the country. He also advocated for education and public charities, and he advocated for laws against alcohol consumption and lotteries, which we have talked about in the past. In 1833, Mann moved to Boston, and in 1835 to 1837, 
He served in the Massachusetts State Senate. He served as president of the Senate from 1836 to 1837. While in the State Senate, he continued advocating for the public good, this time focusing on infrastructure, funding the construction of railroads and canals. In 1837, Mann was appointed Secretary of Education for the newly created Massachusetts Board of Education. As Secretary, Mann developed his philosophy and became one of the nation's greatest education reformers. So, Bill, can you expound on his public education philosophy? So, in 1837, an education reform movement in Massachusetts succeeded in establishing a state board of education, as Rachel just mentioned. The recent state Senate president, Horace Mann, was appointed as the first secretary of the new board. He would serve in this capacity for 11 years before being elected to Congress. He established the Common School Journal to provide updates and thoughts on education to teachers and interested members of the public every other week, and he lectured extensively, becoming well-known not only in Massachusetts, but also across much of the country. One important thing was that he laid out six principles of how he believed that public education should be organized. First, the public should no longer remain ignorant. This was important for a republic with elections open to a significant portion of the population, or else it was feared that ignorant masses might be swayed too easily and uncritically. So the idea was, obviously, that you needed to have the public get educated. Then the question, which leads us to some of the other principles, is who gets educated, and how they get educated. So the second point was that such education should be paid for, controlled, and sustained by an interested public. He was also concerned that the local model of funding education in New England was leading some districts to balance budgets at the expense of their schools, which unfortunately has remained a persistent problem to present day, although Massachusetts today at least provides more of a state backstop of resources to districts struggling to fund their educational obligations locally on their own. The third principle was that this education will be best provided in schools that embrace children from a variety of backgrounds. This could mean a lot of things in a current context, but at the time this mostly alluded to the need to educate poor children, not just middle-class children. And again, that matters when you have uh, a republic with fairly expansive suffrage, which was not the case in much of the world at the time. Rich children, of course, were usually privately tutored at the time. Nevertheless, Horace Mann believed as well that the mixing of children from different backgrounds, including socioeconomic backgrounds, in common school experiences would be socially positive and stabilizing to the overall society. Unfortunately, given local population sizes and the prevalence of children leaving seasonally for extended periods to help out on the farm, Mann's vision for this intermixing concept in most communities also meant one-room schoolhouses, which we now understand are extremely inconvenient to teaching material successfully to a group of kids hugely varied in ages. So that is something to remind, remind yourselves as we're discussing this. As I said in the intro, as I said earlier, Massachusetts was definitely a major center of industrialization in this period, but still we're really not for the most part talking about big urban centers. We are mostly still talking about like farm communities and some towns that are barely more than the size of a village. So just bear that in mind as we're discussing this contextually although obviously a lot of these principles can still apply in some modified form today. The fourth principle was that the education must be non-sectarian. This was important considering the diversity of Christian religious sects in the early United States, although this is before the major wave of Catholic immigration into the U.S., 
And the idea here was to avoid sectarian silos and also minimize educational disparities based on varying beliefs, differing levels of resources within a sect, and so on. But Horace Mann did still assume at the time a somewhat Christian character to education, especially when he was fending off critics of secularism in education. This view was not necessarily consistent over his tenure, however, and I'll get back to that in a moment. The fifth principle was that the education must be taught using the tenets of a free society. And this point for Horace Mann included abolishing corporal punishment, which we'll talk more about later. The sixth and final principle that he articulated, especially in places like the Common School Journal and his lecture circuit, was the idea that education should be provided by well-trained professional teachers. This final point brings us to the next area of discussion, Horace Mann's emphasis on rethinking and reorganizing how to train teachers through what we would more recently call teachers' colleges, but historically were called normal schools. Um, Now, according to uh, one uh, MSU webpage that I found on the history of Horace Mann, quote, normal schools were created to train teachers on the best practices of teaching in the public school system. One could look at this as the first version of a college of education or a form of what we know today as professional development. So this is the idea that, you know, as we said, there's a lot of tutoring that happened, especially if you were rich, but usually people didn't really have any sort of particular formal or regulated way of becoming a teacher. And if they did, the extent of it was usually making sure that you had some base level of knowledge in the areas that you were going to have to teach. All right, you'd hopefully have a teacher who was literate and could do basic arithmetic. Maybe you'd have a teacher who could do Greek and Latin or something like that. But this is a more standardized way of making sure that everyone does come into the teaching profession with a certain baseline level of knowledge. And this is really important that they have some sort of pedagogical philosophy. Basically, the difference here is, are you just teaching like rote memorization? Are you just doing whatever you can think of to get the kids to learn the material? Or do you have a a philosophical approach of how you are trying to teach the material? And this is obviously a source of major debate in addition to these other points that that I've just talked about in terms of his philosophy of how to set up schools themselves and how to fund them and things like that. And the curriculum, right, it's not just about what the contents of the curriculum are, but how you teach it. Um, I did mention, and we'll get back to that in a moment, about the issue of uh, corporal punishment. That's obviously something that is a point of debate, so to speak, or historically was, I should say, in, in pedagogy. Do kids learn better if you punish them physically for not learning the thing you want them to learn? Uh, should Children uh, of the younger ages have more of a, you know, playing with blocks and that kind of thing approach, right? That ends up being the model for kindergarten later. Um, And so before this point, this was not really something that was thought about that extensively. It was thought about a little bit in Europe, but within the United States, this was not heavily thought about. So the idea of having these normal schools to train teachers is not just about making sure they know the material they're going to be teaching, but also that they understand best practices of how to teach and how to make sure that the kids are learning the material uh, as much as possible, especially when they have to periodically leave for several weeks at a time to go do farm work. 
Horace Mann, beginning his work as Secretary of the Board of Education in 1837, the same year as the founding of Mount Holyoke Female Seminary in western Massachusetts, also placed a great emphasis on female teachers, not male teachers, because he believed that women were naturally better educators and a positive influence on children. So bear in mind, at the time, men were generally teachers, women were generally not teachers, except if you're possibly talking about some of those uh, private tutoring context, maybe for, you know, rich girls to get educated and so forth. But this view that Horace Mann had that women were naturally better educators than men and should be prioritized is probably reasonably consistent with a wider set of cultural beliefs growing at the time in the United States and for several decades prior, which is embedded in the concept known retrospectively by later 20th century historians as Republican motherhood where women were no longer expected to remain uneducated because they were, in fact, now expected to transmit important Republican, American Republican values to the next generation. Obviously, earlier on, before the Horace Mann era, this would have been through the motherhood process, right? You would teach your own children these concepts, and they wouldn't necessarily go to school. But now, if we're thinking in 18, late 1830s and into the 1840s with Horace Mann, how to set up public education system, you transfer that basic idea over to having female teachers uh, teaching the next generation. Now, in practice, of course, implementation of Republican motherhood type ideas had been intermittent and uneven at best in the late 18th century and early 19th century in the United States. But by the 1850s, uh, men and those who agreed were beginning to carry the day, and teaching was increasingly a feminized occupation over the rest of the 19th century. Of course, many of the newly educated northern women became prominent abolitionists, something Horace Mann would have appreciated, as we'll talk about, and of course, they also became first-wave feminist suffragists. So let's talk about discouraging corporal punishment, because I've mentioned it a few times, but it's also a topic that is weirdly back in the news lately in some conservative U.S. school districts who are trying to reimpose it, allegedly at the request of parents, which is probably true. Uh, and that is, of course, if they're not barred explicitly by state law from doing so. Many states, of course, now have bans against corporal punishment in schools. Horace Mann was not especially successful in his lifetime, or indeed for more than a century after his lifetime on this point, but he did argue extensively for ending corporal punishment in schools, and that's something that at least some schools and some districts took to heart when adopting his ideas. At the time, and this is now quoting from a uh, piece reported on by American public media. At the time, the teacher's job was not only to teach basic reading and arithmetic. School would, would train children how to behave, how to be members of society, be good citizens, be responsible. Teachers commonly used corporal punishment in the form of a switch, cowhide, or ruler. Students knelt on sharp objects or stood for long periods of time. The authority of teachers to discipline students came from a legal term from English common law in loco parentis, which translates to in the place of a parent. This gave teachers a lot of discretion, yet many criticized corporal punishment for its ineffectiveness. Education reformer Horace Mann called it a relic of barbarism, and he argued that students should learn how to monitor their own behaviors. Still, educators agreed that discipline was, in some form or another, an inherent part of a teacher's job, end quote. This discipline point is significant as well, because he's not just saying there should be no discipline in schools, he's just arguing that corporal punishment is not the way to do this, but in fact, he did really prioritize discipline quite a bit. 
Uh, and we can see this a lot with his uh, Horace Mann's famous trip to Prussia to study the schools there and the lingering influences uh, even to present day on Massachusetts schools from uh, the Prussian school system in northern Germany uh, of the period. Uh, quoting now from the Wikipedia page for Horace Mann, talking about this trip, uh, Mann hoped that by bringing all children of all classes together, they could have a common learning experience. This would also allow the less fortunate to advance in the social scale, and education would equalize the conditions of men. Moreover, it was viewed also as a road to social advancement by the early labor movement and as a goal of having common schools. Mann also suggested that having schools would help those who did not have appropriate discipline in the home. Building a person's character was just as important as reading, writing, and arithmetic. Instilling values such as obedience to authority, promptness in attendance, and organizing the time according to bell ringing helped students prepare for future employment. So Prussian militarism and discipline, as a result of this trip to tour these schools in Germany, arguably ends up baked into some of the fundamental concepts of American public education and classrooms. And although some of that is a little bit extreme, uh, a lot of that, what I just read, you can clearly see still exists in American public education and classrooms today. Now, it wasn't all bad, right? It wasn't all about uh, obedience to authority and bell ringing and things like that. Mann was also particularly impressed uh, that teachers in Prussia were prepared with lessons and repeatedly mentioned in his amazement that they taught without books in their hands. Mann was intrigued by the various topics they discussed, mentioning one being zoology instead of just studying the Bible. That's a, a paragraph again from the MSU page, and I think there's some important points within that short paragraph and several sentences there. First of all, it emphasizes that his views evolved uh, as he got more exposure to these alternative schooling uh, methods from Europe, that you could have a education that wasn't super focused on Christianity and the Bible uh, and, and took that non-sectarian point a, a step further. Uh, you could also see these pedagogical concepts, the idea of preparing lesson plans in advance, not just winging it on the day of, uh, being so prepared that you don't have to teach with a book in your hands, so you're not just reading off of something and making the kids memorize it. But in any case, eventually his time came to an end uh, as Secretary of the Board of Education in Massachusetts, and Rachel will take over uh, with the later stage of his career. So in 1848, after 11 years of service, Mann left the Massachusetts Board of Education to fill the vacant U.S. House seat that John Quincy Adams held until his death. From the very beginning, like his predecessor, Mann was openly anti-slavery. His first speech, which would not have been allowed less than four years earlier under the U.S. House's infamous gag rule on debating slavery, which John Quincy Adams had finally gotten lifted, so his first speech was about excluding slavery from U.S. territories in the West. Regarding the Wilmot Proviso, a proposal to ban slavery in territories seized from Mexico in the Mexican-American War, Mann wrote in a letter, quote, I really think if we insist upon passing the Wilmot Proviso for the territories, that the South, a part of them, will rebel, but I would pass it, rebellion or not. I consider no evil so great as the extension of slavery, end quote. And we'll have another congressional quote from Horace Mann at the end of this episode on the topic of anti-slavery as well. Um, in 1850, Mann feuded with Massachusetts U.S. Senator Daniel Webster. Uh, he, Webster was soon to be U.S. Secretary of State. Um, 
the feud was over Webster's support for the Compromise of 1850, which extended slavery into the territories and strengthened the Fugitive Slave Act. Mann called Webster's support a, quote, vile catastrophe, unquote, and compared Webster to, quote, Lucifer descending from heaven, end quote. So Mann did experience some backlash for his remarks. Uh, he lost at the Whig nominating convention for his representative seat. However, Mann ran as an anti-slavery independent candidate and was reelected to his House seat, serving until 1853. Um, he ran and lost uh, for... Uh, a race for the Massachusetts governorship in 1852, and then he left politics in 1853 to become the first president of Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. It is worth noting that although Horace Mann was successful in proliferating many of his public education ideas across New England and some of the rest of the North during the 1840s, there were vast sectional differences in the level of industrial and human development, especially prior to the American Civil War, and it was not until the Reconstruction period and the end of slavery that wide-scale public education was attempted in the American South. When Reconstruction was abandoned, so too were many of these experiments in education, especially for former slaves. Or at the very least, in areas where public education remained, the efforts were significantly modified and certainly segregated with unequal resources allocated. The trajectory of Southern public education went off in a very different direction than Northern schools. But the principle of public education was kept alive in Southern states' constitutions, despite the inequities between the races. So the principle was, was kind of enshrined in the state constitutions, but in practice, the principle was gravely injured, but it still kind of was kept alive. And for more on this, uh, you can listen to our friend Patrick's episode of his podcast, Conspiracy You Can Believe In, where he discusses Alabama educational and constitutional movements in the Redeemer era, and, of course, we will be linking those in our show notes. Horace Mann might have been a public education pioneer, but many of his views that were revolutionary at the time would today be regarded as very unfortunate and wrong. For example, he was into the pseudoscience of phrenology, like many of his peers, and he had some other views that we would now consider bad or eccentric, like his hostility to alphabet-based literacy, which again gets into this pedagogy debate point. Now, on the other hand, for the first point, Mann saw education as a cure to purported phrenological obstacles so that these alleged skull defects supposedly shaping personality and mental traits would not be permanent barriers dooming someone to failure. So I suppose in that sense, it's a more progressive view of phrenology and that education can overcome that and it's not a permanent debilitation that you can't uh, beat from birth. And on the other hand, for the second point, which was his hostility to alphabet-based literacy, this one was something that jumped out at me, and I gave it some thought on my own as to why he might have had that perspective. Today, I think we would say, that's silly and you should do that, but let's think about it in the context of the time. English language pronunciations, even today, are so bizarre and constantly shifting that you can kind of see why alphabet-based literacy might be a controversial teaching method for English reading and writing, especially at the time. Bear in mind that Noah Webster's pioneering American Dictionary of the English Language had only been published in 1828, in which Webster, already a publisher of spelling guides for schools, had personally put his permanent stamp on American English, interpreting the official spelling choices based on existing American pronunciations at the time and in certain places, and just simply based on his own personal spelling reform preferences. 
This dictionary was considered radical and shocking at the time, rather than being immediately and widely accepted by everyone. And so you can see why maybe there would be some controversy over teaching literacy through the alphabet. Now, when I went to my trip to Cuba recently, and we went to the museum about the literacy campaign, that's what it's referred to in English, the term that they use in Spanish to talk about that teaching process and that campaign, we don't have a word for in English as far as I'm aware of. The closest translation would be basically teaching the alphabet. That is an interesting point to make there. This is something that we think of as being relatively common across multiple languages and dialects, but in fact, English in particular has a lot of challenges with things not being pronounced the way that the letter is pronounced, and the letters themselves not being pronounced the way that the they are labeled when you sing the alphabet song, right? There are plenty of letters, uh, like, you know, the letter Q, you're not going to usually pronounce it as Q, right? The, the uh, letter W, you're certainly not going to say W when you are pronouncing it in a word. So while there are some obvious advantages and benefits to teaching through the alphabet, you can see why this would have been a point of pedagogical debate at the time, especially when uh, American English pronunciations and spellings were only just starting to be standardized and codified in a way that people didn't even agree on at the time. So I thought that was something interesting. I don't know, Rachel, if you had any thoughts about that, but that was my theorizing on my own as to why he might have had some objections to that. That could, I mean, he gave plenty of reasons why, but I'm saying why, looking back on it, it maybe doesn't sound as crazy as it might. Yeah, it, I think we're just so used to standardized spellings that... It, it sounds like a no-brainer to us, but yeah, there were a lot of alternative spellings going on at the time. So I, I can see definitely his view that alphabet-based literacy uh, would would not necessarily be the best way to go about it. And it brings me to mind that uh, phonics is kind of like a, a concept that swings in and, in and out of vogue right. um, over the years, too. So yeah, there's always this debate on the best way to teach literacy to children. And yeah, it, it's kind of a never ending debate, even when the schools have been so, so entrenched and established. Yes. And I think essentially he was more in the camp of whole word learning. And I guess you can see why you might want to prefer that if the spellings and uh, pronunciations and so forth were going to vary. I mean, he, he makes the argument, I think, in, in one of his uh, lectures or essays that you don't teach people what an animal is by showing them each little part of the animal and saying, you know, okay, and that constructs up to a cow or something. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that perspective, but in the context of the time period and the way that American English was being only just starting to be standardized at the time, I can see why that why he might feel that was a confusing way of teaching English, especially when there's not a baseline level of literacy in, in the whole population. Um, I also want to point out uh, that Antioch College was a was a very progressive college at the time. Um, it was a co-educational um, institution. It was the fourth college that allowed women to enroll. Um, and it was also non-sectarian, um, which aligns with, with uh, man's views. And also, um, it didn't it didn't condemn or condone um, African Americans from enrolling. And they did have some African-American students shortly after they were open. 
one of the uh, courses of study, like what we would consider a major today, was pedagogy, right? So like mm -hmm. you could, it would be like a teacher's college, except they did offer other things as well there. Yeah, so it was very progressive and very in line with, with his views. Now, to close out this episode, Rachel, we have two extremely metal quotes. Uh, if you want to take the first one, this is a Horace Mann quote uh, from that December 1848 speech that you cited earlier on the anti-slavery topic that he made in the U.S. House. All right, so if you want to hit us with that quote, and then I will uh, hit us with the second quote. I think the country is to experience serious times. Interference with slavery will excite civil commotion in the South, but it is best to interfere. Now is the time to see whether the Union is a rope of sand or a band of steel. I guess we would consider that today to be accelerationism, the idea of forcing the crisis in the South, forcing them to have to make a decision and potentially secede and be held in against their will and forced to change their policies against their will. And he did not agree with that accommodationist perspective. And I think that's an interesting, very... Uh, 1840s Massachusetts abolitionist view, certainly, and, and one that we would celebrate. The second quote, uh, which is from an 1859 commencement address shortly before his death at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, where he was the college president, as Rachel said, uh, and is now the motto of the Antioch College. And I really relate to this quote and find it completely fascinating, is, be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. Certainly how I wish to live my life, for sure. I, I really appreciate the sentiment. Absolutely. All right. Well, Rachel, thank you for coming on this week to talk about this important figure in American society from the first Industrial Revolution period. Yeah, I definitely wasn't as familiar with him as you were being from Massachusetts. It was a very interesting topic.